Greetings. My name is Dr. Sekou Franklin, the President of the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. A major transformation has taken place in cities since the late 1990s and early 2000s. Blacks, particularly low-income and working-class residents, have been displaced in dozens of cities, including Seattle, Atlanta, New York City, Washington, D.C., and Boston, Massachusetts. In this episode of the Freedom Plow, we examine the racial politics of gentrification, as well as the impact that gentrification has on public health, affordable housing options, and political representation. We have three esteemed guests for this episode. Dr. James Jennings is Professor Emeritus at Tufts University and is one of the leading scholars on urban politics. Shanera Pierce has worked on fair housing policy in Detroit and recently worked as a policy coordinator at the Fair Housing Center in New York City. And Ari Teresa is a civil rights attorney focusing on municipal zoning and administrative law. He is principal partner of Stoop Law, which is located in the Anacostia neighborhood of Southeast Washington, D.C. Um, uh, maybe each of you could describe what is going on with African Americans. Um, what do you see, at least visually, in your, in your respective cities as it pertains to African Americans and, and Latinos, um, as it pertains to gentrification and displacement? I'll start with um, Ari, because there's been some recent reports that have stated that Washington, D.C. has faced the, the, the highest level of gentrification and displacement, at least as it pertains to low-income residents and, and particularly African-American residents. And then we'll move on to Professor James Jennings, and we'll, then we'll move on to Shanera. So what is going on in your particular city? Well, um, gentrification's really hit D.C. hard. I know that's come out in the news. It's something that we've all observed um, with our eyes, but now studies are starting to come out uh, showing that um, even among cities that have been hit by gentrification, D.C. is, is exceptional in terms of, uh, you know, the intensity of the gentrification and the amount of displacement that's transpired um, from the gentrification. Uh, I think that uh, pretty much what I've observed is it moves um, pretty predictably and it is totally rooted in government policy that this is not something that that just happens. Um, mm -hmm. Generally, there are like massive zoning changes that pre precede it. Um, there's investment in, uh, in the area that, that it hadn't seen before. Uh, a lot of uh, tax, tax abatements are given. Uh, money is given to developers. Um, and it, it's a really top, it's a top-down process that do, does not include um, the communities. And, and uh, from what I've observed, even the processes that are in place um, to, to enable communities to participate um, are, are many times uh, avoided in areas where they are attempting to, to gentrify. Um, and what I mean by that is... Um, uh, the laws and, and different procedures a lot of times at the agency level uh, won't be followed and, and it won't be a, um, a, a legitimate hearing that, that's offered to people who appear in opposition. Now, this is historically um, 
recently, like DC's began, uh, a lot of residents have began fighting back. And so uh, there's a closer eye on like the agencies and that sort of thing. Um, so it's not as bad as it used to be. But um, yeah, I, I see gentrification happening and it, it's definitely not something that's organic. Um, it, it, it requires a, a lot of government um, involvement uh, legitimate government involvement and illegitimate government involvement. Okay. 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 okay and you, yes. And uh, again, thank you for pulling this form together because we really are in the midst of an urban crisis regarding gentrification, displacement, and impacts, negative economic and social uh, health, mm -hmm. housing impacts on low income and working class communities. And gentrification, as Ari is suggesting, is not a natural development. And I mention that because in Boston, we've had debates about this, and some scholars and some representatives of the foundation sector, corporate sector, government sector, sometimes discuss gentrification as, as, as if this is a natural process that eventually will work itself out and benefit everyone. And of course, being on the ground level, we know this is not accurate at all. There are four components, at least four components to how, let me call it the face of gentrification in Boston. One is a real estate frenzy. The real estate market in Boston is out of control. And so you have development all over the city, all kinds of uh, places in the city where the uh, developers uh, have a lot of informal say in deciding what goes up, you know, and, and, and how they define affordability and how they intend to use zoning regulations to facilitate development. So that's one of the issues that we're struggling with in Boston. How do we get local government to take more control of real estate activity, which again, just seems, and it actually is out of control. Related to that is the, uh, is the, uh, rapid, rapid rising of rents. And so you have some parts of the city that uh, for a long time were low-income, working class, primarily black, Latino, uh, and people are still struggling to make those areas better to improve the quality of life. But all of a sudden, they're being hit with a wave of rising rents. And of course, we know that the reason these rents are being raised so dramatically and so significantly is because landlords, bigger landlords and developers see the opportunity to make money by displacing people with rising rates, investing a little bit in fixing them up, and then bringing in people who can afford enormously uh, high, high rents. The, the other two components, again, of the face of gentrification in Boston are evictions. Last year, there was something like five, six thousand, between five and six thousand evictions in uh, the city of Boston, and uh, most of these evictions are taking place in communities of color, and most of these evictions are taking place where people may even be living in subsidized housing, where that housing is beginning to lose their subsidies. Uh, at the same time that this is going on, in some of the poorest areas of Boston, the most low-income areas in Boston, we see a wave of new wealthier white households moving in, white households and white families. And these are not white families who are saying, 
you know, I used to live in Boston. I want to go back. I want to go back to my geographic roots or whatever. These are very much newcomers to Boston and the state of Massachusetts that all of a sudden uh, are attracted to Boston, even to the poorest areas. And they're coming in with median incomes that are anywhere between five and $10,000 higher than the median income of longtime residents, primarily black and Latino in some of these working class areas. Yes, thank you. Thanks. Shanera, what are you seeing in New York City? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I ultimately have to echo a lot of the sentiments that both of you just lifted up. Um, I think as a fair housing advocate, one thing I often try to lift up in these conversations is ultimately how many of our families wound up in these gentrifying neighborhoods in the first place. And it is due to the pervasive housing discrimination that's fueled this um, racial, spatial, and economic um, segregation of our communities. Um, and this is a, it's, we didn't get here by happenstance. Um, it's a combined effort by both the private industry and public policy that's got us here um, over many generations, I mean, you know, over generations of routine disinvestment in our communities and um, other land use policies that's got us here. And I think um, it definitely is fueled, it's in, it's, there's a increasingly an affordability crisis that continues to constrain and limit the housing choice of our black and brown families as well. And so... Um, as we see these housing and rent values are steadily increasing, coupled with the decrease of, ac uh, of uh, access to higher wages and, um, and the, the lack of access to generational wealth, um, you know, that has put us behind that mobility curve. Um, and, and we will, um, and also just like, you know, decreased laws and policies that offer true housing choice, we're going to be invariably our, our families are invariably rather um, at risk of at the whims of gentrification. Um, just two clarifying questions before moving further, because they've, they've come up in conversations I've had with, with, with folks. Is there a difference between gentrification and displacement um, in, in, in urban spaces? Well, I mean, this is James. These two terms are very much uh, conjoined and, uh, uh, I think it's it's difficult uh, to sort of separate them out, at least conceptually in my mind. Uh, gentrification is, again, not a natural process, and it's a process that has negative consequences. And one of those consequences is displacement. But displacement is, is not, it's not, should not be confined, in my opinion, conceptually to people losing their homes, although that's critically important. Displacement also involves impacts on schools, impacts on homelessness. In the Boston public school system, we have 55,000 uh, students. A good 8,000 at any point might be homeless, due in part to what is happening with, with uh, gentrification. Uh, displacement also has a health component to it. Uh, just yesterday, three of our largest teaching hospitals put aside $3 million uh, over the next year to actually pay for rents for some of their patients because even the hospitals are beginning to see, finally, the connection between housing, displacement, and health impacts. And so the justification by these three hospitals was that we have to be concerned about people being evicted because those evictions 
uh, spur a domino effect in terms of all kinds of, of uh, ill health uh, impacts. So, so again, I, I, I for one, you know, when I talk about gentrification, it does mean displacement. Let's not, this is not to say, however, that we live in a society where people always move in and out. I mean, that's not the issue here. People have a right to move anytime they want to move into a neighborhood or outside of a neighborhood. That's basic fair housing. But, uh, but it really goes beyond that. We have to see gentrification and displacement as a systemic process. And as my colleagues mentioned, involving government, the corporate sector, and foundations. Okay. And my other kind of clarifying question, especially in, in, in light of um, uh, an emergency summit that was put together by Dr. Ron Daniels, and, and also linking that back to some of the debates and the research, um, is, is gentrification that is the modern 21st century, late 20th century gentrification, is that a, a, a product of, of, of race or class? or both, and I know the literature is kind of going back and forth. Are we seeing, for example, um, in, in Washington, D.C., are we seeing black middle-class communities, for example, that are being displaced um, along with uh, low-income African-American communities? In places like Boston, there's historically been a, a working poor, working class, white, white community. Are we seeing gentrification in those places like that? So. How would you how would you how would you address this issue of is it race or class or a combination of both? Um, and Ari, do you want to take that? Yeah, um, I think that that's a complicated question. Um, I think in some senses it has to do with race and class, but I I look at look at it primarily um, through a racial lens. Um, I, I think that. I think that black people uh, for a long time in this country, for whatever reason, uh, have been in a state of flux and have always mm -hmm. had this sense of, uh, you know, moving around and, and not really having a home or a place mm -hmm. to be comfortable. I mean, from the beginning of our history here, um, I, I think that there are some black people who um, benefited from gentrification, but within like the larger framework of uh, white supremacy and the way that our society works, I, I think that ultimately uh, that, that this is a, a racial issue. I'll give an example. Um, in D.C., uh, homes, like the last time the home, the, the home values reached like a fever pitch was about 2008. And so a lot of people sold their homes. And so that looks great, right? That like black people made money. I always get this question. Well, haven't black people benefit, benefited from gentrification? They, they, um, have, they've been able to sell their homes and make X amount of money. Well, when you look at the patterns of where people move, um, you know, once, once the, the markets reach that kind of rate, like where else are you going to move? Um, and so a lot of people here ended up moving to black suburbs like PG County uh, with their profits. But then when the economy... Uh, turns down and, 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 the, and the cycle uh, plays out, those are the areas that are hit the worst. And so a lot of those people ended up making money in D.C., buying in PG at the peak, and up being upside down when the economy turned around. Yeah. So I, I, think that, I think that within like the, the broader framework, like we always lose 
And so I don't see this as a, a, a class issue. I see it mostly as a, a racial issue. Okay. Anyone else want to add to that? Well, I, I would I would agree. This is primarily in in many places a racial issue. At the same time, and I think this is suggested in Ari's uh, comment, we cannot approach this devoid of class. We're dealing with some fundamental issues dealing with the distribution of wealth, who has wealth, how they got wealth, who doesn't have wealth, how they wealth was taken away from them. And so, mm -hmm. so, so we would be making a mistake by not seeing this as a racial issue. Uh, but we would also be making a mistake by overlooking the class dimensions of what's involved here. And so the response not only has to be one of uh, 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 against uh, racial hierarchy and racism, but also strategies that challenge uh, class uh, in how it's being played out in these local communities. Okay. Um, the other question I have for you is, um, I'm thinking about gentrification and I'm thinking of some, of some re recent research um, in the 21st century or late, uh, or late, late, late 20th century. And what are some of the factors that have contributed to this wave of gentrification that we're seeing today? That makes any sense. And um, I'm thinking of things such as the subprime mortgage crisis and foreclosure. Um, I'm thinking of some zoning and code provisions and planning and, and, and land use decisions, land use policies. So what are some of the factors? What is it that's, a, what are the factors that are shaping gentrification today that we can point to what is it that has occurred in the last uh, a decade and a half that has contributed to gentrification um, as we know and see it in the 21st century? Um, who wants to take that question? Um, as, yeah, I, can, I guess I can just echo your, your, um, your sentiment, Dr. Franklin, on, you know, just thinking about the subprime mortgage. Um, the recent crisis, rather, as just another wave of disinvestment and discriminatory lending practices that have been a long tradition um, um, uh, within housing policy that impacted our communities. Um, and it's repeatedly wreaked havoc in our communities and decreasing access to wealth building through home ownership. Um, and I think this brought up, I mean, not I think, this is a fact that it brought up about, um, about a steady decline of our urban communities and conversely um, made those same communities appear as an investment opportunity um, due to the area's relative affordability. And this is why I think it's justified to use the term, you know, a increasingly growing urban crisis because what you just described, Genera, is, uh, is also played out in Boston. In Boston, mm -hmm. you actually see some stages. First, you have pushing predatory lending in black and Latino communities and all kinds mm -hmm. of, not just lending, all kinds of predatory practices. Uh, then these properties are foreclosed. And in right. the last few years, these properties are being resold at much higher prices and for people who were not living there previously. And so this, again, this is, this is, a, this is a systemic dynamic. The, the other Absolutely. thing that's happening in Boston that we're trying to uh, that we're trying to uh, rectify is the separation of zoning from fair housing 
in Boston, the zoning codes in Boston were established in 1956. We know that the Fair Housing Act was established in 1968, two very different periods in Boston. Uh, over the decades, people have pursued zoning decisions that facilitated these stages in, in directly and indirectly without fair housing at all being on the table. And so that is a big battle that we're trying to uh, engage in. That is uh, uh, forcing the city to include uh, fair housing regulations into our zoning regulations. Mm. Have any of you looked at um, issues such as uh, task increment financing decisions, um, uh, land swaps, or some people refer to this as you know, pilot agreements, payment in lieu of tax agreements, this kind of broad swath of land use policies, some of which, at least on paper, in, in a traditional academic book, uh, PIFs, for example, were supposed to be designed to assist economically distressed communities. But it seems like these land use policies, an assortment of them, both 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 seen and unseen, have been used, even those that, those that maybe were designed with some so-called well-meaning intent, have been used as kind of push-out push out measures, push-out mechanisms um, when it comes to, to our community. Have any of you looked at those issues as well? Yeah, um, I, I think that the TIFs uh, have been used particularly um, to uh, push, push out and change communities um, and, and it's really the, the way that they work is, um, you know, it, it will relieve the developers and the people move and those people from having to pay property taxes. And then you have people who are of lower income, like actually having to pay property taxes and having to sustain them and their, the, the, the newcomers and the, and the drain that they put on the infrastructure through their taxes and um, it, the, the TIF actually becomes viable through the increase of taxes in the surrounding area. So it's, it almost budgets or uh, predicts for like um, displacement and, and the, the increase in taxes is going to occur surrounding the area. Um, because it, in D.C., they don't make the TIF districts include the surrounding neighborhoods it just includes the, the development. Yeah. And so the, the surrounding neighborhoods end up bearing the cost of that. And um, it, it ends up pushing them out and like higher property taxes, higher, pro higher property values. Um, yeah, I, I think that it, it's a really, it's a really a uh, horrible system, but, but yeah, those are things that they employ when they're trying to turn a neighborhood and it goes hand in hand with uh, zoning changes. Okay. What are well, uh, Ari? Just real quick, what are some what are some zoning changes that have been implemented that have accelerated displacement and gentrification? What are one well, or two? Um, a, a lot of the zoning changes uh, involve changing an area from residential to high density. So an area may have only uh, maybe a three-story height limit or four-story height limit. Uh, maybe moderate density. Um, and then what they'll do is they'll say, okay, well, you could build a 10-story building here um, and have uh, this very high level of density of people living here. Uh, 
they don't put very much affordable housing in it. The inclusionary zoning is very slight and doesn't yeah. set the impacts at all. Um, and so what ends up happening is once you tell someone that they could, that they could take a plot of land that, that you could build four stories on and now you can build 10 stories on, that plot of land has instantly become more valuable because there's more that you can do with it. And so the surrounding area responds to that change in value. Um, the, the businesses that are across the street from there, the rents increase because now you have more prospective customers because the density is higher. And uh, it brings in new businesses, uh, which impacts the businesses that the residents who have been uh, living there can visit. And everything becomes more expensive in that area. And uh, the, the prices respond more quickly to changes in, in zoning than it does to, you know, the, this, this concept of... Um, but yeah, there has been, you know, an increased concern in the, zone, the upzoning that is happening in our communities okay. um, and how it has uh, uh, fueled displacement um, within, you know, already vulnerable communities. Okay. Um, and uh, Professor Jennings, did you, did you want to add to that, Professor Jennings? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really, you know, an important issue. The, the best example in Boston is a recent call for the development of Suffolk Downs, where we used to have horse racing and dog racing. Uh, and it's a huge swath of land. And as development moves forward, this will become the biggest development in Boston in recent history. I don't know if it's the biggest in the history of Boston. I kind of think it is, but I don't know for sure. And, uh, and how zoning is uh, getting played out. Uh, the development company that's proposing development uh, got a whole bunch of zoning waivers. When you look at their proposal, they look for building a uh, number of one-bedroom units. Uh, in response to the city's housing crisis. But the problem is that Suffolk Down is adjacent to communities that have among the largest families, uh, mostly Latino, some black, but the largest families in, these, in, in the city of Boston. And these longtime residents don't need one-bedroom apartments. They need two- and three-bedroom apartments. Yet the proposal completely ignores this. And again, they ignore this because Zoning has given them a cover to ignore the reality of what long-time residents will need if they're going to not just benefit from the development of this place called Suffolk Downs, but also not be displaced. And, and, what, and what, does, what are we going to expect with uh, black political representation with gentrification? We have a census that's, that's going to begin, I believe, in, um, in uh, next year. I think July or, 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 or of next year is when it has to be at least under, finalized or undertaken. And um, we have redistricting that's also going to take place at the federal, state, and local levels. And we may see a sobering reality when it comes to where we are in terms of African Americans and how that affects both congressional districts, but also state legislative districts and to some extent, single member council districts as well. So. What are you seeing in terms of what are people expecting is, is, is going to black black political representation is going to look like in in your respective cities as a consequence of gentrification? 
it, it in Boston, the black population over the last 10, 20 years has basically remained stable. The Latino population has grown explosively. Uh, the white population that is not Latinx has declined. But what you have in Boston still with the black population is a concentration, the black population in certain, in certain neighborhoods. And that's remained the fact for decades now. And even as we move towards the next census, although that black population concentration has spread in a sense, we still, we still see a concentration. So, so that might mean that might mean that uh, uh, black local representation is, you know, it's still viable, but it's, it may not be as viable uh, as a decade or two decades ago. But in addition to, in addition to, uh, to the importance of black local representation, uh, it's also that important for black local representation to understand these systemic factors that are taking place. And so uh, there really has to be a progressive agenda adopted by black political representatives to respond to gentrification and displacement. And uh, uh, it's important that they be there, but it's, al it's also important that they be there doing the right thing. And what about the collateral consequences of gentrification and displacement? I know there's some uh, some studies or some research or at least conversations among activists about um, mental health issues, for example. Um, in some cases that I know of, people have uh, two weeks to pick up and move, one month to pick up and move. Right, right. Um, I know that um, there was a recent study, I believe on gentrification in D.C., and a footnote in that study was a public health professional um, from a local university said that there is there, there may be mental health issues emerging from gentrification. Oh. Trauma, for example, uh, the loss of a community, what that means in terms of one's uh, emotional stability. So, so can anyone comment on the kind of collateral consequences of gentrification that, that you're finding? Yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. The impacts of gentrification are definitely driving stress levels within our communities and people are sleeping less, they have less time for leisure, they have, they're working more just to maintain a decent quality of life and then when facing displacement, you know, that widens the achievement gap um, and decreases the educational outcomes for children within the household. More children now are living in shelters or, um, you know, are, are living, experiencing homelessness rather and it's, it's definitely becoming a, uh, a drain on the resources that you know the, on uh, that the public schools can offer in order uh, the children who are facing these concerns. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, I'm also concerned about what gentrification is doing just to the to the the, the public, the public sector, um, mm -hmm. schools, for example, yeah. public hospitals, um, municipal employment. And the ability to stabilize the public sector, um, which is which has been facing really a kind of an all-out all assault from neoliberalism and privatization, and um, a shared economy and other kind of factors. So, what do you think about gentrification in terms of its impact on 
uh, uh, the ability to have a vibrant urban public sector um, that has particularly been at least accessible to African Americans and long term finding in your in your so 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 in Boston there are, uh, this is such an important question because we we're, we're in the midst of debating what is Boston especially given the history of Boston around racism and segregation and schools and housing and, and so forth. Uh, but uh, unless the correct decisions are made that are progressive decisions in terms of policies that benefit everyone, that do not displace people, what we're going to see and what we're beginning to see is uh, the reemergence of segregation in a very different way than we saw in the past. Uh, the reemergence of segregation more, not so much along neighborhoods, but sub-neighborhoods. Uh, years ago, for example, if you said the word segregation, South Boston would come to mind, the neighborhood of South Boston. Today, if you go to South Boston, uh, it's very segregated, but very, very few white working class, working class people live or work, spend their time there. Uh, this is segregation of the super rich. Uh, and, and predominantly, overwhelmingly white. Uh, in some neighborhoods like Roxbury that were predominantly black for decades, all of a sudden you have these pockets of uh, white residents, wealthy white residents. And so we're seeing segregation within neighborhoods now. Mm -hmm. uh, as displacement and insecurity takes place, we are also seeing an impact, although this is not as clear yet, but we're seeing an impact on the workforce. The local economy cannot move forward without a stable workforce, but homelessness and insecurity and people needing to move out to cities will have a detrimental effect on uh, workforce productivity. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, the uh, as much as we struggle to make sure every child in the Boston public school system has a quality education, uh, we're seeing housing insecurity rear its head in the form of homelessness. So you have children, thousands of children, who wind up at one school, and by the end of the year, they might be at two or three different schools because they've had to move two or three times. Some of them live in shelters. And so... Uh, so this is not this is not the making of a city that is that should be a vision for you know the future. It really uh, uh, this is these are really some fundamental challenges and problems that Boston will have to grapple with. Okay. Anyone else want to add to that? Okay. So I have a, a a couple more questions, but I wanted to ask one another clarifying question, which is been discussed among many activists that I know. I know. Um, who are the investors behind? Have you looked at the investors behind the development? Um, um, my assumption is, uh, hunch is that um, the rapid pace of gentrification across the country suggests to me that there are real estate trade shows. Um, there's a conversation at the superstructure level with, with maybe high-end developers or investors that maybe a local elected official may not even be be, be privy to, um, but there's still a big question of who are some of these investors that are that are driving some of the displacement and development that we're seeing in these in these high growth or pro growth cities. Have any of you looked at any of that as as well? 
Um, yeah, I, I've, I've noted that, um, that the government is an investor okay. and also that, um, there's something called the EB-5, I believe, visa program. And so there's a lot of foreign investors. Yes. Um, and I, I think that that's problematic. Um, mostly because of both both with the foreign investment and the um and the government investment a lot of times this stuff comes in as gap financing so this money is stuff that the banks are not willing to lend so the banks are looking at these projects like it's a risk and so they're only willing to give them so much money to make it happen okay but then you have these people um, who are completely disconnected from our, our markets um, and who have other incentives like getting a visa or even staying in office um, or, you know, or, or have very little understanding of the situation at all with this huge appetite for risk, willing to fill the gap. And so it, it seems just to me like a recipe for a bubble, like, like this is not something that can sustain. Yes. Is it, is it, um, Ari, is it, is it possible for, I'll give you an example, in my neighborhood, a person may get a letter, um, a stock shelf letter to, to ask them to sell their home, um, his or her home, um, and is it possible that, that a foreign investor is using a front entity to leverage that process, or is that, is that going too far? I, I don't think so. I think that these EB-5 programs are, um, are, are pretty well regulated by the State Department, I think, um, or, or some, some, some federal agency. And you, you, you generally align with like a, a firm, like a consulting firm that like does this sort of thing. And um, they'll, they'll, they'll take however much money they need from you um, so you can get your citizenship. I think it's like 800000 or something like that. It's some amount of money to get a U.S. visa or, or a green car, whatever they get uh, that, that will help them um, move here, become citizens, do business, be residents, whatever. Um, and so the consultant will take this money and pool it with other foreign investors and give it to developers like large developers uh to fill gaps in their finance okay yeah uh -huh. okay but either way um it, it just um, I, I know james wants to add it either way the idea that a a working class person goes to a public comment hearing on zoning or codes uh, <laughs> and negotiates in a so-called fair democratic process a chance to stay in their neighborhoods against high growth development, there's a larger superstructure that you're saying that's shaping absolutely cities that we have yeah. to be more in, in tune with. Yeah. You don't you don't have a chance coming in there as a citizen um just just doing these things. I mean you have to like and even as a lawyer bringing these issues, you have to write it up in such a way where it implicates a lot more than just your clients mm -hmm. and a ruling against you would undermine some very fundamental things about this country. Um, but yeah, like, like just the idea that, you know, somebody could come in um, to a zoning hearing 
and even if the laws are clear and be heard, um, yeah, that I, I, I think that a city like DC is far beyond that. Right, mm. James, did you want to add to that? Or? Yes, uh, this is why it's so important to have data transparency. These deals are going on all the time, but the public doesn't know enough about these deals. Who's getting over? Who's who's uh, who's getting messed over? And so, one of the issues that I think we uh, we need to pay more attention to is how do we get data? What's the data we that we need to understand what's going on around us? And how do we make that data free and transparent for the public? Uh, there was a recent study. I think it was. I think it was the Institute of Policy Studies, but don't quote me on that. But there was a recent study looking at the investors in Boston who were investing in luxury condos. And luxury condos were defined as an average price of $2 million or more. What this study uncovered that these investors from all over the world, global investors, were buying these condos, developing these condos, but the condos are vacant today. There's no one in them. And so uh, the study suggested that uh, these luxury $2 million condos in the midst of a housing crisis that Boston is facing uh, are just sitting vacant because they're not really investing in the future of Boston. They're investing in, in putting their money into what they see as a safe bet given what's happening around the world. And it's just remarkable that uh, and I can't give you the number because I don't remember the actual number, but a significant number of these luxury condos, no one's living in them. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. It's the same thing happening in DC. Um, yeah, uh, that's happening in New York. I, I mean, wow. I, I cannot underscore that enough. <laughs> Janera, do you want to expand upon that? What's going, what's going on in New um, York? No, I mean, I, that's something I've, I've been reading about and I, I hear a lot of discussion on. Um, I've not, you know, studied it extensively, but I, I definitely have heard that many times over since I moved here. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I think the key point is that it's not supply and demand driving the housing market. It, right, that, right. You know, and... And so whatever it is that's driving the housing market isn't considering pricing, isn't considering the types of housing that people need. Um, it, it, there's, there's other motivating factors here. Okay. Um, I have one last round of questions, but one clarifying question just real quick. Um, that was a hard question. Where are people moving to if they're being displaced? Have you, that's always the hardest thing to track. If you're being displaced from Harlem or from Roxbury or from, or from uh, uh, Northwest DC, or now maybe in PGC, Prince George County, where, where are folks moving to? Yeah, um, you know, up here what we're saying is that people are moving into the outer commuter ring. Um, I mean, and I can't even say that people are necessarily moving into the suburbs because there still exists this exclusionary zoning, you know, and other discriminatory, um, you know, housing policy that impacts, you know, where poor people of color can actually live and actually afford to live. And so people are being forced out into the outer commuter ring, um, you know, into outer suburbs, but they never actually, I mean, outer um, yeah. suburbs, yeah, that they've never... Uh -huh. 
had to live before. Um, that, that's the same thing in Boston. I, I mean, if you go to, again, not the suburbs in how we think about suburbs, but just the outer ring, uh, mm-hmm. right next door, you know, but outside the city, there are cities like Brockton, Randolph, Taunton, and these cities are exploding in terms yep. of uh, residents who used to live in Boston. Mm-hmm. And these are primarily black and Latino residents. In some cases, mm-hmm. Asian, but mostly black and Latino. Right. Yeah, in D.C. it's the same exact thing. There was a couple studies um, that, that discussed um, the, the increase in poverty uh, in the exurbs, like the, the far out mm-hmm. suburbs. Yeah. Um, and, and how that's increased um, and, and correlation, correlating to displacement from the city, like during the same time frame. So you're seeing a lot of these exurbs get uh, huge black populations, um, a very large increase in poverty, uh, poverty rates in these areas. Uh, one, one, one city uh, named Woodbridge, it, it was far out in Virginia, like 30, 40 miles away. They call it hood bridge now. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and like, it, it's just like this stuff, like people have moved way far out the city. I've even heard of people like in West Virginia and stuff like that. Right. Saying a drive in rural development. Yeah. Or rather, resettlement rather. Um, my last question that I have is, um, what to do about it. Um, from a policy perspective, from grassroots resistance movements, from legal perspectives. Um, I know I'll, I'll begin with, with Ari because I looked at some of the suits that you brought, um, particularly the Barry Farm suit, and then we'll move on to Shanira, then we'll close out with James Jennings. So what can, what can communities do about it, whether they're from a legal perspective, policy perspective, or grassroots organizing perspective? Well, I think that it's important that communities get organized uh, at a grassroots level, um, just in terms of numbers, to place pressure on politicians. Because right now, the agencies are captured by private industry. Um, they're not doing what they're supposed to do, and they're not going to until you know they, they feel pressure from the people. Um, so, so I think grassroots organizing is very important. Um, educating people about these issues I know zoning's complicated, and it's a lot to learn about, but um, these are the things that are changing the nature of our communities. Like, we have to understand it. We have to be able to engage it um, and even even expect losses. Like, when you go before an agency, like, I wouldn't expect to win uh, when, when when you argue your case at the agency. A lot of times, you're just creating a record for appeal. Um, Appeal it in court. And uh, then you go to court. And um, in court, win or lose, you've created leverage because now you've delayed a project, a a process that, uh, you know, may have only been um, predicted to take a year. Now it could take two or three years. Now it could bring them to another economic cycle. So now you have leverage to ask for some of the things that maybe you wanted at the zoning commission, but they weren't willing to give you. or maybe you could turn the project around in court if your case is that strong. But I, I definitely think that like we need to be involved at every part of government. A lot of times people think that you know our role as citizens ends with voting. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. 
we have to hear hearings. Um, we have to lobby because they the developers do this stuff. They lobby. They go to hearings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. To your to your point, and I'm not sure if you, the Berry Farm suit was that was 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 won or lost, but I thought it was innovative that you that you challenge at least I think a, a development project or. Um, can you explain what the Berry Farms in South, Southeast D.C., correct? Right, yeah. I'm a little bit familiar with Berry Farms area, but can you explain what your idea, your intent, your strategy was? Well, I, I would say that Berry Farm was probably the, the worst, probably one of the worst zoning decisions um, that, that the Zoning Commission uh, was made to be held accountable for. Um, you Berry know, Farms being this large black... Yeah, large public housing complex... Uh, 400 black families lived there, um, and it was slated for redevelopment. They were going to raise it and build a 1,500-unit mixed-use apartment building. Uh, residents showed up um, to contest to, or to oppose this redevelopment and uh, were told all kinds of um, things that aren't true. Uh, one, that you know the Zoning Commission couldn't consider gentrification and displacement. Well, these are things that are in our comprehensive plan. Um, one, that they didn't qualify for party status because they weren't uniquely impacted. Well, these were residents that were about to be displaced from their home. So if they're not uniquely impacted, who is unique, uniquely impacted? So these were things that the Zoning Commission were trying, like, um, you know, worked with the developer, basically, to just kind of push this project through um, and make it happen fast. Uh, and, and kind of steamrolled community input. Um, and so we appealed that decision and the Court of Appeals, and we did win the case. Um, you know, the, the zoning commit, the Court of Appeals, um, you know, was so, was so egregious, so many things that they did wrong that they had no choice but to overturn the case. Um, because then you like upset a lot of things with the legal system. Um, so they overturned it. Uh, but, you know, it was too little too late. At that point, uh, the, the zoning commit, not the zoning commission, but the, the Department of Housing um, had done all kinds of things uh, to, to move residents that had nothing to do with the redevelopment. You know, they were, they were putting residents out because they were in mismatched units. These people have been in mismatched units for 20 years. For instance, um, you know, a lot of people... Um, were living in a place with their family. Their family member got older and they moved out. And so, so they were alone in maybe a two-bedroom unit or a three-bedroom unit. So they were going around, uh, you know, telling these people that they had to leave because they were in mismatched units. Now, all of a sudden, they cared about the condition of you. Oh, your units are bad. You got to leave. Um, and then they started tearing down the buildings that they had emptied out. And, uh, you know, there was lead in it. And they, they left the rubbish there. Um, the, from the, from the, the, they left the debris from the demolition and, uh, then they came and did lead testing in the units where people were remaining and told them that there was lead there. And, and a lot of that was because they demolished buildings with lead and just let it sit there and blow all over the, the site. And, um, and so, yeah, everyone ended up having to leave, um, for reasons different than the redevelopment. Wow. But, yeah, everyone had to leave. No. Shanira, from your perspective, uh, working on fair housing, what are some of the policy initiatives that, that uh, can't be implemented or used to address um, 
gentrification or affordable housing in general? Yeah, um, I think that, you know, it took a public, a lot of public and private interventions to get us here, and it's going to take a lot of that to get us, um, for us to address these concerns. Um, the first thing I can think of is that cities and regions must develop a, co a cohesive and holistic understanding of the issues concerning gentrification and displacement within their jurisdictions. Um, particularly, I'm thinking about the AFFH ruling um, up to, in 2016 that says that uh, jurisdictions that receive federal housing funds have a legal mandate to affirmatively further fair housing um, by taking a planning approach that addresses that uh, develop substantive meaningful actions um, to overcome historic patterns of segregation, promote fair housing choice, and foster inclusive communities that are free from discrimination. Um, and this is one of those Obama-era policies that has been consistently eroded over the current administration, and we are doomed to continue the harmful practices without enforcement of this policy. Um, and I think with better data, policymakers, communities, and developers can make a a more informed decisions on affordable housing preservation and other anti-displacement strategies. Um, I also think we need programs and policies that not, not only offer mobility support to families at risk of displacement, but also place-based strategies to help them resist gentrification. Um, and this can include increasing housing choice vouchers to the market value to ensure that poor families can actually afford to stay in the communities with higher rent. And I think coupled with this, we need increased protections for vulnerable populations who are more susceptible to housing discrimination in the market, which includes um, protecting people who use different sources of income to cover their cost of housing. Um, I also think that we need more forms of rent regulation um, and the enforcement of rent regulation that will help stabilize communities that face uh, rising rent um, and just different strategies like that. Describe uh, real quick again the, the, the ruling that you mentioned in 2016, I believe. In sure. The ASH ruling um, promulgated under the Obama administration came down um, in response to what was the ICP um, case, uh, which basically mandated that, you know, public housing authorities have to do and cities and municipalities have to do their due diligence in order to ensure that the policies and practices um, that they are implementing are not furthering um, segregation and, 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 and increasing, you know, um, housing insecurity for, for our, our families. And, um, you know, recently, actually earlier this year, um, under this current administration, there has been a suspension of that rule, um, which basically, <laughs> that was the only rule that, that actually had some, um, some teeth <laughs> to the original um, 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 fair housing legislation um, that actually helped the, you know, jurisdictions to, to, to their cause. Like you must do what you, you must do what you can in order to address um, segregation and, 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 and housing opportunity for, for vulnerable um, community. And the agency is, can you say the name, the full name of that agency? Oh, um, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Just came through um, HUD. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay, Professor Jennings, James Jennings. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's so important to share these, uh, you know, these struggles and, and responses that are going on. I think that by itself is very empowering. But in Boston, I would also emphasize the importance of resident and community mobilization 
and also bringing the youth into this conversation because uh, uh, that's important for the future. Uh, resident mobilization in Boston, community mobilization in Boston, grassroots activism in Boston is focusing on at least four things. One is reintroducing rent control. Uh, the state of Massachusetts uh, uh, dismissed rent control in 1994. Boston was one of three cities that voted against that resolution, and we need to put that back on the table. We need rent control in Boston. The other thing that uh, uh, community grassroots activism is focusing on is ensuring that evictions are not used as a real estate an exploitative real estate tool. So we're looking to introduce some uh, rights and resources for families and individuals who, who face uh, unjust evictions. Third, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, changing our zoning regulations uh, so that they do reflect uh, fair housing. So they do reflect, uh, you know, the, the components that Shireen uh, mentioned uh, uh, right now, zoning is uh, too much open to uh, the prejudices and biases of the real estate and development uh, sector. And with fair housing uh, language in our zoning codes, uh, we can then begin looking at development in a, in a more progressive way. And then the other issue that people are concerned about is the narrative around affordability. Uh, affordability cannot be defined as something where basically upper middle class, you know, public workers uh, have access to affordable housing. They should, but not at the exclusion of working class residents. So affordability has to be defined on a neighborhood level and not on, a, in this case, a Boston metropolitan level. So, so those are some of the issues that we see as far as grassroots activism is concerned. There's also a push to use some vacant lands in Boston uh, to develop as community land trusts. Uh, this would reduce the speculative nature of land transactions in Boston. And we do have some very successful community land trust models uh, in Boston and really in Massachusetts that we want to expand upon. And uh, let us also not forget the impact of commercial gentrification. And so as we're talking about the housing displacement, it also, it also touches upon the displacement of small neighborhood businesses that have been there for decades and generations working with local residents. And these, this sector is also impacted negatively, and we have to make sure that we change that. And, and, and is the Dudley Street Initiative an example of a land trust that... Yeah, oh, that, that's one of the best. That's a national, international example. It's not the only one, but the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. Uh, there's Inquilino Poricos and Acción Iba. Uh, when you go back to the foreclosure crisis, for example, uh, these two community land trusts uh, cooperatively own hundreds of units. Not one foreclosure, not one foreclosure occurred uh, under these two community land trusts. But I can give you other examples as well. Wow, wow. Well, we thank, we thank the three of you for joining this podcast. I think uh, our audience is going to learn a lot from um, all of your wisdom and your, your, your information that you shared um, with us. And um, I think it's also important for understanding uh, 
African-American politics um, in the 21st century and policy. So again, I want to thank you for joining this podcast, and um, I greatly appreciate your time. No problem. Thank you, thank you for having me. It was great being on with everyone. Yes, thank you. Thank Pleasure you. meeting you all.